Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery Podcast. My name is Ashley Lil Blassingame, and I am your host. Today, we have Brendan McDonough, who was a f- hotshot firefighter based in Prescott, Arizona. I'm going to uh, read you his incredible bio. Uh, Brendan was on the verge of becoming a hopeless inveterate heroin addict when he, for the sake of his young daughter, decided to turn his life around. He enlisted in the Granite Mountain Hotshots, a crew of elite hotshot firefighters based in Prescott, Arizona. Their superintendent, Eric Marsh, was in a desperate crunch after four hotshots left the crew, and seeing a glimmer of promise in the skinny would-be recruit, he took a chance on the unlikely McDonough and the chance paid off. Despite the crew's skepticism, and thanks in large part to Marsh's firm but loving encouragement, McDonough unlocked a latent drive and dedication, going on to successfully battle a number of blazes, and he eventually wins the confidence of the men he came to call his brothers. Then on June 30th, 2013, while McDonough, Donut as he'd been dubbed by his crew, served as lookout, they confronted a freak 3,000 degree inferno in nearby Yarnell, Arizona. The relentless firestorm ultimately trapped his hotshot brothers, tragically killing all 19 of them within minutes. Nationwide, it was the greatest loss of firefighter lives since the 9-11 attacks. After the unfathomable loss of that day, McDonough suffered from seemingly insurmountable bouts of depression, post-traumatic stress, and issues with alcohol. But the light of hope that inspired him to keep living in one of his darkest moments, his family who needed him, inspired the firefighter to fight on against depression, addiction, and to inspire others to find their best selves, even if that means often looking beyond the self. Building a sense of brotherhood within communities gives McDonough great joy because it helps this firefighter honor the legacy of his 19 lost but not forgotten brothers. I have chills reading that. Uh, Brendan is incredible um, in every sense of the word. Um, You may know him from the movie that was based on his life, um, Only the Brave. And it is quite, quite an amazing cast, absolutely amazing cast. And it's just what he went through is beyond anything that most of us can comprehend. Most of us uh, heard about this on the news when it happened, um, this fire in in Yarnell, Arizona, um, that took the lives of 19 firefighters and leaving Brendan as the one sole survivor. So Brendan talks a lot about his struggles with drugs and alcohol. And he also talks about what he's done since then, which is start a recovery center um, that helps firefighters and first responders and um, is just an incredible testament to his the work that he's done since this unimaginable tragedy. So I cannot stress enough how grateful we are that Brendan wanted to come on the podcast that he made time and was willing to be incredibly vulnerable and talk about this story that I'm sure he's told hundreds of times. And you will see that in our interview, it was not a canned pitch. It was from the heart 
even though I'm sure I, he has told this story so many times. It is. It did not feel like that. It did not feel like something he had told hundreds of times. Um, I felt incredibly connected to him and he felt incredibly connected to his story, which is just really impressive and really takes a lot of practice and vulnerability. So without further ado, my friends, I give you Brendan McDonough, Donut, as they call him, episode 82. Let's do this. I lived in the historic area on Country Club Drive. Yeah, yep. And then I lived near, I don't know if it's the same place. It was a treatment. It was a halfway house that was not, that's not there anymore, but it's over near the YMCA. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So I live kind of by Emory Riddle. Okay. Yeah. Flight school. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm in the awesome. same neighborhood. Did, did you come out here for recovery? I did. Yeah. I nice. Did. Where'd I you did. go? You know, you know what they say about Prescott yeah. Yeah. Come for the recovery, stay for the relapse. And I did. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a part of recovery. I, yeah. So I went to Gatehouse in Wickenburg. I went to two treatment centers in Wickenburg, one of which is no longer there. Gatehouse is no longer there. I was there for a year. And then I went to the Meadows. And then the Meadows had a house in those days called Pia's Place. And so I was at Pia's Place. And then I left Pia's Place. And my boyfriend... Uh, I got a boyfriend in Prescott, obviously. And um, my boyfriend in Prescott was a tattoo artist at um, Prescott Tattoo Company. I don't know if it's, I don't even know if it's still open. And so he and I worked there. I was a piercer at Prescott Tattoo Company. He's now at Rudy's place in the Valley, which I don't know. It's, I don't remember what it's called, but so yeah. So uh, I, I saw your, your hold fast recovery, hold fast tattoo company was started by a guy that worked at, at at all the like all those same people were there back in the day and oh so we so hold fast recovery and tattoo are completely separate totally totally it's a small town so but it's now it's since i've been back like when we when i lived there prescott valley was i mean nothing was there dirt roads so you were here oh five oh seven so i was just in high school yeah that was uh that was when i was just starting to cause the chaos in the community where, which high school were you at? I was at Prescott High School. Okay. Okay. There was a, uh, <laughs> there was, I think I, I would go over there. It's funny. Like, yeah. So I, I was, I was around in that time, but, and I knew some of the high school kids cause I was 18. Um, okay. Yeah. So I knew some of that, but yeah. So anyway, I, I say that just because I know kind of where I know the area you're from. And I also, I know that a lot of people didn't know what, where, what Yarnell was. I mean, nobody knows Yarnell. And back in the day, like I, I very much knew where Yarnell was because I would drive from Wickenburg to Prescott and go through it all the time. And, and we would ride motorcycles down and through it. So very familiar. Yeah. So anyway, I, I, I have some connection to, uh, to, and so Prescott's your hometown? Uh, I grew up in Southern California, but I've been here, gosh, since 2004. So I've been here 16 years. Yeah. So I consider okay. it my hometown. Okay. Okay. Where in Southern California? Oceanside. Well, I, I lived all over, actually. 
I grew, was born in Lancaster, Lansplatter, however you want okay. to put it. <laughs> uh, lived in Northridge. Okay. Through the earthquake, a few other areas in Los Angeles County, then moved down to Southern California. I was like six or seven. And um, lived in Oceanside, Vista, you know, just kind of all over. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I'm in, I'm, I'm in Orange County. So what, growing up, how old were you? To, okay, so I ha- you moved to Prescott when you were 13. So you spent a lot of time in Southern California. What was your relationship with your family? What did your family life look like growing up in SoCal? And then why did you move to Prescott? Yeah, so my my mother, a uh, single mom to me and my brother, my dad was gone, I think by the time I was two. And so we have separate fathers. And so my mom just struggled trying to find stability. And, you know, my grandparents would help her out, find a place to live. Lease would come up, couldn't afford it. I'd go back to living with my grandparents. My mom would fix something out. So I just kind of went back and forth for a while. And the reason why we ended up moving to Prescott was my my mom's real dad was sick with cancer. And so I had never met him before. I didn't know. I didn't know I had another grandfather. I thought, the grandfather that was in my life was him because I looked just like him, you know, um, spit an image of him. And so I'd never thought anything different. And then my mom came out a year before me to get settled, get work, get everything taken care of. And then I would come move out the beginning of my freshman year. And, uh, that was hell at first. Yeah. It was a culture that's... shock. <laughs> I mean, you, you came from Southern California to here. It's like, holy no, I, cow. I came from Northern California. Oh, NorCal. Yeah. Yeah. But I had been in Wickenburg for a year, so I had a nice setup. I wa- It wasn't quite as bad as it would have been, but uh, NorCal to Wickenburg was pretty brutal. Yeah. It's, um, it was just it's like not, taking a different. step in a time machine. Yeah. The yeah. The culture's it, it, different, especially back then. The culture was very different. Very. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it looks like a time machine, like downtown Prescott is, I mean, in a cool way, like the, the downtown area is so cool and historic. I'm more as an adult (laughs) than it would be as a kid, but, um, you're like, yeah, super cool for you guys. And it was, uh, very much a retirement community. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Still is a huge community. I think the medium age is still like 57 or something. I mean, it's growing. It's, I mean, it's been booming here over the last probably four years and especially the last probably two years, we've just had hundreds of homes going up and people are, you know, flooding different states coming here for the mountain air and, you know, all the other stuff they get into. But, uh, yeah, it's, it, I like it, you know, it's grown on me. I, I love it here. It's changed a lot. You know, we've kind of culturally diversified, which is really cool. And, We've got a really awesome school system, you know, where I raise my kids. So, yeah. That's awesome. And uh, when, so when you were in, so when I was there in the, and you were in high school, that's kind of when things started to fall apart. But it sounds like there were a lot of struggles for stability early on. That was definitely part of your story. Definitely. Like, I didn't know I had like daddy issues, quote unquote, until... You know, I got into recovery and I'm like, oh, wow. You know, I, I hold nothing against my father for being absent. And then we've since then connected and, you know, but I just realized how important it was to have a father figure in my life. And so being a dad now, you know, that makes makes the world a difference. But yeah, that instability really, 
led to a lot. And I don't know if like you can say I was good at doing drugs, but like that was it, you know? And so I just took that and ran with it. And I was never got caught selling, never caught caught using, you know, I was pretty fortunate, I guess, in a sense. But on the flip side, it just continued to allow me to fuel a lot of my use and lead into harder drugs. When you started using, so you tried marijuana at 12, right? Yeah. And a lot of people talk about, we can just stop right here for a second. And a lot of people talk about how marijuana is a gateway drug. It sounds like that was the case for you um, it, because it went pot and then drinking, sounds like. I don't know. Like, I think marijuana can be a gateway drug. You know, really what kicked it off for me was when I got my wisdom teeth removed. And that's when prescription pain pills came in. Like, you know, pot was in my life. Drinking was in my life. You know, but when I when I felt, when I look back and I see like the difference between a young kid who's kind of messing around and someone who's right. addicted, like I feel like at the age when I had my wisdom teeth removed, that really was it. You know, because I, I called up the doctor and I'm like, hey, I dropped the full bottle in the toilet on accident, but really I snorted all of them, you know, or I ate them over the weekend or whatever it was, you know, and back then, like, you know, oxys and everything were being so pushed. I just seen this morning that Purdue's getting sued and it just brings so much joy to, to my heart that these companies are being held accountable and hopefully the family will be held accountable, but there's a lot of layers they got to get through. But yeah, then someone else would get their wisdom teeth. Like we all got them removed and none of my friends wanted their extra pills. And I'm like, well, shoot, dude, here's, you know, 50 bucks. Like I'll take your bottle, you know, yeah, take that off your hands. Use it. Yeah. Yeah. And then it just kind of perpetuated from there. You know, it was any, any kind of pill I could get my hand on. I was, you know, snorting or ingesting and along with, pot, marijuana, ecstasy, cocaine, and acid. and But that was kind of, I feel like, the, the, the pivotal moment in my use, looking back. And then, then I found heroin. Then obviously it was like, oh, wow, this is cheaper. And I get higher and more numb from my reality. How did you find heroin? Like, what, what was the the leap from, you know, because I I, I, I I too am a heroin addict or was a heroin addict. And you know, I don't know about you, but for me, that leap was not something I ever... I mean, it wasn't hard to see me, given how I used many drugs, to see me getting addicted to cocaine. Like, that wasn't a stretch for me. I could see that that was happening. And I could see it happening beforehand. But heroin was one of those things where, you know, we all went through the D.A.R.E. program and uh, that was not going to happen to me. Like, that didn't happen to people in my situation. I was terrified of needles. So, like, that was definitely not going to happen. And somehow it did like in my head, it, it, it just wasn't going to happen. So a lot of the time, I think it's interesting to explore with people how they, how you get there, because I think for a lot of families and certainly for people who are kind of, you know, maybe struggling with a pill addiction, but haven't jumped that, you know, haven't crossed that bridge, they don't see how you can, how, how they would get from one place to another. I'll tell you, I was so against it. Like I would <laughs> beat up drug dealers. Like I'd beat up heroin dealers Yeah, like for fun. Yeah. Like I was like, you, you know, you worthless scum yeah. as I'm like smoking uh-huh. and drinking and popping pills. And, you know, I was so against heroin, meth, speed, you know, that kind of like upper echelon of drugs, whatever, however you want to put it. 
I, I was, and I was deathly afraid of needles too. You know, I was like 16, you know, I'd get in fist fights, not a problem, get a broken nose, no issue. But I get, if I had to get a shot, like I'm in tears. And so I was hanging around a bunch of friends and, um, I just dropped out of my EMT class. I flunked out and just super depressed. Couldn't get hired on the fire department. And I'm like, well, I guess God's got other plans for me and I'm pretty good at s- selling pot. So <laughs> definitely in God's plan. Yeah. And it, it, it just kind of transformed in a friend of mine, you know, you know, I'll, I'll never remember the first time he's like, Hey, we're going to go to Phoenix. We're going to pick some stuff up, hang out, you know, and we'll come back. And so, we started off at this like nice house in Phoenix and we're smoking some pot and this guy pulls out some tinfoil and stuff. And I'm like, Oh, okay. And, uh, they're like, Hey, Brennan, like this is, you know, this is heroin. This is way more intense, but it's a lot cheaper. And I'm sitting there thinking of like how much I'm paying for pills, you know? And I was fascinated with the process. Like I'm watching him smoke off this tinfoil and I'm like, wow, you know? And, it was horrible, but I was just intrigued. And so I remember trying it and never have ever felt a high like that before to where I didn't get sick. Like if I could eat that many pills and get there, but I'd be sick or, you know, almost unconscious. And so from that moment on, I was hooked. And then, you know, we smoked everything we had and he's like, Hey, I got to go pick up for my dealer. And so we go to pick up from the dealer and it's like, completely different neighborhood and i'm like oh this is this is what i was talking about that i wanted to avoid like you know but it it didn't stop there you know i had used for quite a few months and thank god i never put a needle in my arm i was just still deathly afraid of it i'd see it and i'd get squirmish and i was like that's not for me and it was it was radical though like from being so against it to with an instant moment, I'm like, it's cheaper. It's, you know, quote unquote cleaner, you know, and I get a better high. So that's, that's what I'm going with. And the pot kind of just dissipated, you know, the alcohol kind of just was when I couldn't get high and heroin was, you know, the, the new thing for me, heroin and pills. It just kept diving deeper. And like when I flunked out of that EMT class and couldn't get hired in the fire department that summer, like it's not till the next fire season that I have an opportunity to put in an application. It's not until after the summer semester. So I just went all out that summer and into the the winter as well. Yeah, it was, it was, it was bad. You know, it was bad. I was selling stuff and my daughter's uh, mom was pregnant at the time and then I really couldn't get together. And I'm like, ah, oh, this is not going to end well for me. Yeah. Did your mother struggle or did your dad struggle with substance use? Yeah, they both did. Yeah. Did they ever um, talk to what to extent? You about that? No, not really. You know, I was pretty good at hiding things. Like I, I could be out till three, four o'clock in the morning, partying, getting high, and I could be up at seven with no uppers. And I'd be go, I'd, I'd go do community service. I'd be, I'd be volunteering in the community. I'd be digging holes for veterans to plant trees so they have somewhere to sit under the shade. Like I, I was very good at manipulating and keeping keeping a, a straight face but at some point in time the walls fall down and there's not much you can hide but even even writing it out when i was arrested you know the officers had followed me for six months and they never had a clue about any of my drug history not not one bit 
they didn't, and I was selling during that time and picking up and everything. And I, I thought when I was arrested, it was going to be drug charges, you know, and it was theft. A friend of mine had stolen some stuff out of a car and I was driving and he grabbed like a GPS and a radar or something. And I, was, I remember getting in the car. I'm like, dude, why did you do that? You know? And I'm like, well, we're already committed. So let's just go. And so we take off and I think nothing of it. I literally put the GPS. He gave me the GPS. He had the radar, I think. I put the GPS in a box under my bed and never used it. Like didn't sell it, nothing. I just was like, I don't, you know, I don't like this, but. They followed you for six months because of that? I guess there was a bunch of other break-ins happening. Okay. And so they thought that, you know, him and I were doing it. Yeah. They thought, hey, we caught the master burglar. And so when <laughs> I was arrested, it wasn't like a normal arrest. You know, they came in with their slacks and button up. And I'm at the gym working out, trying to get my life together with my best friend. They arrested friend. you at the gym? Yeah. My high school wrestling coach was there. My best friend who was doing really well in college, full ride scholarship was there. My other wrestling coach owned the gym we're at and they're trying to impound my car. And my coach is like, he can leave his car as long as he needs here. They're like, no, we need to take it. And they're like, no, it can stay. And I get down there and they're like, you know why you're here? And of course, like I can talk, you know, I can talk my way out of anything. That's the thought I had. I'm like, I've got no clue. I don't (laughs) know why you're here. Like I seriously have no clue. I've been trying to straighten my life out. And that was true. I was. So were you I, off I, drugs at this point? No. No. I okay. hit a few days, relapsed. Okay. Hit a few okay. Days. I well, didn't, you were trying. I no, yeah. I had no clue what recovery was because I had a kid on the way. This is right. December. I'm arrested and my daughter's due March. And I'm like scrounging to figure out life. And finally, they show me a video of it. And I'm like... <laughs> You're like, that? <laughs> I'm like, okay, is there anything else? And they're like, like that you had to show me on this. And I mean, the proof was there, you know? And so I just said, you know what? That's me. Uh, they're like, Hey, we have the other gentleman in another room. You know, your guys' stories are adding up and you know, uh, they're like, where's the GPS? I said, it's, it's in a box under my bed, you know? And they're like, well, we're, you know, we're going to arrest your pregnant girlfriend at the time. And just, just being, you know, small town cops. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, She's got nothing to do with it. Well, it's in her house. And I'm like, whatever. And so I go to jail and I'm in there just for a few days. I don't want to play it off like I spent years in there or something like that. Just for a few days. And I see the judge and everything's presented to the judge. And he's he's like, you know, you guys have no evidence on these other B&Es on different vehicles. There's like five others they're trying to charge us with. And, um, you know, throughout my life, like I was saying, I did community service and I was in the ROTC program because it was either that or military school. You know, I played sports. I had completed the fire academy. So I had some things going for me. So the judge gave me a, a second chance and they were trying to pin all those break-ins on us. But the car we had stolen from, it was a convertible, you know, and we both had the items. It was kind of the same thing. They were just sitting under a box or in a shelf, you know, kind of felt guilty about it. It wasn't like theft wasn't something that I really ever got into, you know, a sandwich here and there when I needed food or a soda, but like actually stealing from a person, uh, like I had morals at the time or something, but it was just different. (laughs) Yeah. And they gave me a second chance and I was released, uh, like two, three days after Christmas and I got home and 
got enrolled in my EMT class and I was like, I'm going to get my life back together and get hired on the fire department. But after like two, three weeks of being in the EMT class, same people, same places came around and I started using again. And, uh, that's when it really, that's probably when I hit my, like spring break was when I hit my lowest, my lowest point rock bottom, but I maintained my class somehow. (laughs) That's that's Uh, very impressive. I am impressed. Yeah. I don't know how it was probably just luck, but my daughter was born March 2nd. I was there. I was present. And after that, I just took off. Uh, I was too, too ashamed and too felt so much guilt and pressure not to be the dad that I had who was absent. And so, uh, I just used as much drugs as I could, sold everything I had and woke up in Havasu one day on a boat just knocking my head against the boat and like a sweater and pants. Cause it was snowing in Prescott that night, but Havasu was sunny and 80. I've got no clue where I'm am strung out, woke up in Vegas and Phoenix, different houses. And the party had kind of ceased. The money was out and spring break was up and I needed to get home to my class and I needed to be a dad. So when I got home, I just cut everybody off started trying to wean myself off heroin. I uh, was still going to my EMT class and I heard some guys talking about a open position on a hotshot crew. I'm like, I got my search for that. I need to do that. What's a hotshot crew? Like specifically so hot Yeah. Like a highly qualified wildland firefighters. Okay. You know, um, kind of the, the top of the food chain with smoke jumpers kind of hand in hand dudes who jump out of planes. And then there's us that are on the ground that hike in. Um, and there's a lot more differences, but we're not talking fire here. And I remember waking up that next morning thinking to myself, like, gosh, Brandon, you don't belong here. Like these, these men have trained a long time for this and women. There wasn't any women on the crew at the time, but just in the fire service. And uh, they put so much energy and effort and have got bachelor's degrees in this. And so I drove by the station. I've seen a few guys outside and I'm like, you do not fit in. And I remember just thinking to myself, I've got to make a difference for my daughter. I've got to try. Like the worst they can say is no. Like I've lived with rejection in my life. The worst they can say is no. And so I flip around and I'm like, what about my felonies? You know, like that's going to come up. How's a, you know, no fire department can hire one with the felony unless it's been seven years. And so I pass it again and I flip around and I'm like, just be honest, like Abe, as cheesy it is, right? Like the D.A.R.E. program, there's you know, a few little things in life that I learned. And it was like, at the very least, you can walk out of there being honest. And so I pull in and it's got the big Prescott curbs, right? For the monsoon Mm -hmm. season. And I got this Mm -hmm. beat up 94 Subaru that's got a blown out (laughs) shock and it bottoms out and like rips the chunk off the tire. Doesn't blow out, but I'm like, oh, and everyone's staring at me. And I'm like, oh, good. And so... And it's kind of like John Wayne fashion. I'm, I'm doing construction at the time, trying to make ends meet. And so I tuck in a tank top and I'm like, why am I tucking in a tank top? So I pull it out and I walk in and I see some guys from the class. They say, Hey, are you guys still hiring? And they're like, no, like not today, you know, in short, not today, not tomorrow, not next year, better luck somewhere else pretty much. And I'm like, all right, I get the hint, man. I'll see you at class. And so as I'm walking out, the superintendent comes out. He's like, hey, what are you doing here? And the doors clash, his door and the door I'm leaving. I'm like, I was just here to drop off a resume. I heard you guys are hiring, but I heard you're full. So, you know, if I can leave this here for next season, that'd be awesome. He said, we've got one spot. Can you do an interview? I'm like, yeah, of course. And 
I'm thinking to myself, I'll go home, like find a pair of dress shoes. I'm kind of living out of my car, couch surfing. I'm like, someone has to have a button up. He's like, all right, come sit down. I'm like, oh shoot, like this is really happening right now. And so we sit down and like I said, I'm a good talker. And so I'm talking and they're asking me about my classes and what I've done and all these things. And, you know, just kind of getting into the, start getting into the nitty gritty. And it's like, Hey, how's your license? And I'm like, well, it was suspended, but I paid the ticket. It's good to go. They're like, okay, not an issue. You probably won't be driving anyways. What about drug history? And I'm like thinking to myself for a split second, I'm like, be honest, like Abe, but don't commit job suicide here. And so I said, I've had an issue in the past, but I've got a daughter who was born about a month ago and I'm trying to get my life on track again. And so they're like, okay, all right. And they go, any record? And I'm like, if I don't tell them now, they're going to find out later and it's going to be a lot worse. So I'm like, you know what? I got a felony. When I complete probation, it gets dropped. And I can, and at this point in time, there's about eight people in this room that are full-time on the crew. And they're all just like shaking their head. Like, what the hell are we wasting our time here? And, uh, I'll never forget. They asked me, what does integrity mean to you? And I couldn't give them a straight answer because I didn't know what it was. And I wasn't living my life like those men were at that time. And so I just gave them, you know, it's to have good character and to be truthful, but I didn't understand it. And so he jumps on the phone with HR and he's talking with the lady in HR and he starts running everything down to her suspended license, you know, felony charge. And she's just, I could hear her like shaking her head through the phone. And I'm like, Oh, this is not good. And she's like, why are you hiring him? Like we have a hundred other applicants that have bachelor's and master's degrees that are, you know, D one track athletes that are physical phenomenons and educated. And here you have this kid. And he just said, just trust me. And I'll never forget that. He didn't know me from anybody. He didn't know me from nothing. And he took a chance and took a risk. And later I would find out that my superintendent was an alcoholic and he was in the program and he had uh, many years sober. And um, so they hung out the phone. She's like, I'll figure out the paperwork. And everyone's kind of shaking their head. Like, what are we doing here? Um, but being supportive of their superintendent, you know, he, he's, he's a leader. And uh, he says, hey, if you can keep up, you've got a job. But the minute you quit, you're done. And so I said, yes, sir. He said, go fill out your paperwork, show up here Monday morning, be ready to run. And I'm like, all right, cool. And I walk out and I'm like super excited. And I'm kind of like trying to fix my tank top. And I realized that it was tucked into my underwear from earlier. And I'm like, man, no one told me like, that's how, you know, nobody liked me. They're like, the kid can walk out of here looking like a fool. And, uh, <laughs> oh, so God. I, I start calling everybody up, you know, I'm like, Hey, I got hired on the fire department, you know? And, uh, I call my mom and she's like, all right, cool. Yeah. Let, let, we'll, we'll see how long that lasts. You know, call my grandma kind of kind of a little bit of excitement same thing i call my daughter's mom at the time we're super young we're like 18 19 she's through the roof floor she's got no clue that i'm using either no clue the entire time she knows that i'm smoking pot and drinking but she has no one not even some of my closest friends today that i've known since i was 13 knew i was strung out on heroin some of them kind of moved away we're working like nobody the only the people i used with which was two people i didn't I didn't use with others. I mean, I was keeping it as locked in as possible. And um, 
I remember thinking to myself, like this excitement was so uplifting, but within two minutes, I'm like, I've been strung out for the last year. Even you can even call it five years. I haven't ran a mile in three years. And these guys are talking about running seven. They're talking about hiking with 45 pounds on their back for miles and then working all day for 16 hours in like a hundred and something degree weather. I'm like, I just used dope like three, four days ago. I'm screwed. And so I go to like a GNC, but like an underground one, you know, and I'm like, what kind of drugs can you give me that aren't going to come up on a, on a urine test? Cause I need something like something's got to help me get through this. And it was some kind of stimulant pre-workout thing. And they told me where the run was. So I went to go pre-run it and check it out. And I got like half a mile in and I'm like, I better save my energy for Monday because this is going to be brutal. <laughs> oh my God. Like it was bad. I was probably a uh, 140 pounds and I was always kind of skinny though, but I was like 10, 15 pounds underweight, maybe even a little bit more. And I show up Monday and uh, I do my pack test, which was hell. And I was like three miles, 45 pounds. And I'm like, that was brutal. And the guy's like, dude, this is going to be the easiest thing you do here. So just get used to it. And I was like, like my, I was almost in tears. He had to yeah. join me on the, the hike. Cause he was like, you're not going to make it, dude. You got to pick up the pace. And so we get done with that. And the next day, the second day was the run actually. And I show up for the run and I am beat sore. Like I've taken like eight ibuprofen and you, I'm may, like, need, I'm gonna... you may need heroin to get through the program. And so what it's funny you say that. Cause I used Copenhagen. That was like my detox. I didn't know what detox was. I didn't know what a meeting was. I didn't know what treatment was at the time. I just knew that I had to do this. And so there are 20 of us there and we go take off for this run. And I see the superintendent stay back and I'm like, ah, he must be the brains. You know, it's kind of older. I'm like, it's all good. And so I'm keeping up with them, you know, within like the middle of the pack of the run for the first half mile. Then after that, I'm like tired, out of breath. And everyone starts passing me within the first mile. We've got six more to go. I just see him getting further and further until it's just me. And I wouldn't call it a run, but my feet were moving. It wasn't walking, but my feet were moving. And because he told me, if you stop running, you're, you're done. If you quit, you're done. And I get about halfway through this run and I see this huge hill. And I'm like, dear God, I can't, I'm not going to be able to make it up this. And uh, the superintendent catches me on this run and he's running with me. And I'm like, one or two things are going to happen. He's either going to fire me or he's going to be the dad I never had and motivate me. And uh, he's running with me for like a minute or so. And we're coming up to this hill. And I'm like, maybe he's going to run this hill with me. Maybe he's going to fire me and I have no clue how to get out of here. There's not a shortcut. So I got to walk the whole way back. And uh, he looks over at me before we get to the bottom of this hill. And he, he just says, Brandon, if you quit now, you're going to quit the rest of your life on your daughter. And just takes off, takes off running. And, um, that was one of those moments that, that I made a choice to stop quitting. I was done. I was done with not trying and I was done with not, I was done quitting on myself and I was done with letting the world tell me I was a piece of shit. And I kept running, jogging, whatever you want to call it, gallivanting, moving. however you want to say it, moving. Yep. Kept moving yep, forward. Moving. And so I came in probably like 10, 11, 12 minutes behind you know, one of the last guys and he said, did you stop running? And I said, no, sir, but I wouldn't call it running. He kind of <laughs> chuckled a little bit. And uh, <laughs> then we went straight into push-ups and everything else. And 
it wasn't until later that week that I had to take a drug test. And I remember just like drinking every ounce of cranberry juice, gallons of water, trying to flush my system. Like at the very least, give them a false negative. At the very least, give them something to where it's so diluted that they can't even pick anything up. And I kept showing up every morning. And, you know, that moment in my life was probably one of the most just, uh, I look back and I think back to my youth that I could have been robbed because I was 19 at the time that I could have spent years and years struggling addiction and strung out. And like, those were the, that was the best time of my life was that pain, that pain of detoxing, that pain of not wanting to use that pain of trying to keep up and physically and mentally was literally the best time of my life because it's defined me today. And it's helped me understand that, you know, 90% of what I go through is mental and physical. I can drag my body around and I did it. And I was shocked. Um, we're talking about some of the most, you know, physically fit men and women in the world. And here I am four days off heroin going, okay, let's get this done. And, 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 and I'm not trying to say that as an egotistical thing or like, I just want people to understand if, if you put yourself in the right mental mind state and if you have purpose, like anything is possible, you know, and that's what I was focused on. I was focused on my daughter and the fact that I was done being called a, a, a piece of work and trying to prove everybody otherwise. And so my life just took a completely different path within, within a day. You know, I went from a heroin addict felon to a firefighter, you know. It's- it's overnight. I mean, it, it, it's it's such a beautiful I mean, in so many ways. I mean, I think there's so many like I think a lot of people join the military for, you know, for this reason. I think a lot of people and and if you've ever done something physical, um, I think if you've ever done a marathon or, you know, I, I've done half marathons. I did an Olympic Spartan tri- race. Spartan race. Yeah. I did. I did an Olympic triathlon. And um, yeah, it was brutal. And um but what was interesting about it, I was smoking at the time. Yeah. And don't tell my insurance because it's not on there. And uh, and I I remember and I had gotten really sick the day before. Just this is, you know, just like actually physically sick. Um, I was sober at the time. And I remember seeing and kind of it just reminded me of this. I remember seeing that we had this, it was in Maui, and there was this hill. And you do a 25-mile bike ride. And my strongest uh, sport or, or event was was bike riding. But you get to this hill and the people who were really well-trained are going up of it, up it at like speed. And I start to go up it and go backwards. Like I'm not, str- I'm not strong enough to literally keep my bike going. And that same grit and that same feeling of like from recovery... Is like, no, I, and, and this, not the same thing, but it was the same feeling of like, I said, I was going to do this. I said, I need to be here. I need to finish this for my own self-esteem for, you know, all of that. And so I got off my fucking bike and I walked it up that hill, like kind of what you said, like, I'm not sure it was a run, but I went up and I got off and I walked that thing. And like, the pain of seeing like 70 year olds going flying by me up this hill. I will never forget ever. I will never forget like the, they, they let you out in um, heats by age and like each age group kept 
you know, <laughs> going past me. You had some cruise you by in a wheelchair like you knew. I mean, I, it, some of the most, you know, just humbling experiences, right? Because I was in, I was in my early 20s. But there's a feeling of like, it doesn't matter because I am going to show up and I'm going to put one foot in front of the other. And if I die on this hill, then that's what's going to happen. And if I have to, and in my head, cause I was like, okay, I'm done. Like, I'm just, I'm a horrible athlete. Like I can't do this. I, I told everyone I was going to do this. I raised all this money to do this. And so when you're looking at that hill with your supervisor, I'm thinking about that same hill of like, and that feeling just in you of like, I don't know what I'm going to have to do to get up that hill. Like maybe I'll crawl, maybe I'll walk. And in my case, I walked my bike on a bike ride, an Olympic triathlon, and I walked my bike up a hill and then I got back on it. And there's just this feeling of like, it's not really about the physicality of it. It's about the just uh, relentlessness of your soul, like your soul being like, I won't give up. You won't take this from me. You, my addiction, you, my shitty self-esteem, you, my circumstances in life, you, whatever you is, you won't take this from me because I'm going up this hill. And there's something so beautiful about that. And just like, I, I'm moved by your story. And, and I like felt like I was standing at the bottom of that hill with you where it was like, I guess I'm going to find a way to go up this thing. <laughs> yeah, like, I think there's so many metaphors, like you're saying in life of being at the bottom of that hill. And I think in addiction, especially people just need, they just need to be encouraged that like you can overcome a lot more than you think you can. And if you shut out the world, like anything is possible, you know, anything is possible. We continue to see more and more life-changing stories of people becoming astronauts and, you know, just people in recovery, opening businesses and changing lives and, you know, uh, just accomplishing these amazing feats that without those moments of rock bottom, of knowing how far I can go, this is the hell I know I can drag myself through. When you turn that and put that towards a positive, when you put that equal and exact force towards pushing your life to the worst, to being the best, gosh, like you're unstoppable. And I, I tell our clients, you know, all the time, you know, like, just wait, just wait till you understand what you are capable of. Because I'm going to sit here and tell you every day that you're capable of doing greater things than I have ever accomplished today. And they go, no way. And I'm like, I was in the same boat as you, same boat as you, strung out, nothing to go for, had a kid, and within an instant, maybe not ha might happen like me, but if you stay relentless, like you're saying, if you just keep moving forward, just forward progression, even if you fall down, you're still moving, at least take the yep. step. Yep. At, fall it's forward. a marathon. <laughs> fall forward. Even damn, fall backwards, but still yeah. get back up. You're doing something. Just don't stand there and be a part of something. And that's so important for people to find is like value. Like you said, self-esteem, like we have to, in this world, build each other up within self-esteem. And I found that in the fire service, I had 20 men that were willing to help make me a man, not a teenage boy, not a, you know, not some little kid off in college, spending mommy and daddy's money, you know, wrecking cars, no, a man that was going to give back to his community and understand service and sacrifice. And that's what fires me up. Like I love, you know, serving others and the sacrifice that comes with it because that's what saved my life. There's no more better value than I can put on 
those changing moments. And it had nothing to do with money. It had nothing to do with the place I lived. I lived in a two bedroom apartment and I had a roommate and me and my four year old daughter shared a room as I was dating women. Like it did, none of that mattered. I, I was present. I was a father. I was giving back and I was in a good mindset and I had men that, that, that supported me. And, you know, for two and a half years, I had some of the most, I just prolific moments of, of clarity of what I was going to do with my life. And, you know, on June 30th, unfortunately, that all came crashing down. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hi, it's Ashley, your beloved host. When I'm not hosting the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast, I'm running the recruiting department at Lion Rock Recovery. We are always looking for amazing licensed mental health counselors, along with various other sales and operations positions that pop up from time to time. The Lion Rock culture is one of collaboration, support, and flexibility. Our employees work from home offices all over the country, utilizing technology to connect to one another. We are always hiring. So if you want to have the best job ever, check out our open positions and apply at www.lionrockrecovery.com backslash about backslash careers. Before we talk about the Granite Mountain Fire, I want to just mention that uh, another piece of this, which is that it is so important. And I know, I know you'll absolutely agree with me on this. It is so important that we as members of the recovering community go into the world and do what we're meant to do, whether that's fire, you know, law, whatever it is, because your supervisor had put together years and years of recovery and could see in you what was happening and see what you needed and was there to give you that opportunity. And for us to go out into the world and do whatever it is that we're meant to do and be part of society, right? Be a, be a contributing member of society. And that doesn't necessarily need to be in the recovering world. A lot of people think that they need to be, you know, to go into recovery. Like, no, it's so powerful and vital and valuable for you, for, for us as recovering members, people in long-term recovery to be out in the world and to see others who need that help up and and to see in them and 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 to remove that judgment that so much of the world does have about the disease that we have and and help us step over those barriers because your supervisor he didn't say you can you know you can do a bad job at this and we'll give you a chance anyway he didn't say that you can be less than he didn't say that what he said was I'm going to ignore these things, these the, this record or these things that you get prejudged on. I'm going to give you the opportunity to be judged on your character as you show up in our fire community. And sometimes that's just what we need, right? It, it seems like catching lightning in a bottle, but really it's like, no, can you... I need to it's be peanut butter in a jar. <laughs> like just it's judge, right there. It's just judge me. You know, sometimes we need people who get it, who can judge us. And my goal, my hope is that eventually it will be, this will be, everyone will be able to see that uh, uh, some sort of history is not, does not make the essence of who we are. And, but you, we need to be out there with the ability to say this kid's his, this kid's, you know, record of being arrested for 
stealing a GPS and putting it under his bed is not going to make him, you know, an unwelcome giver, you know, in in our community. We are not going to, that is not going to be the barrier. That is not going to be the end all. And so to give these opportunities, so it cannot be, you know, the value of the newcomer is important, the value of, of giving back, but the value of just being out in the world and doing well and being in positions of power as people in long-term recovery is so, so important, if nothing else. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think it's uh, like, I always say, you know, chase, pace, and pull. Chase the people you want to be like. Pace yourself with the people that are around you that are healthy. And don't you dare not look back and pull the person behind you, you know, because that's where we get where we're at today. And I, I love what you said. We don't have to work. You don't have to work in recovery. You don't have to be a first responder or a veteran to serve others. You don't have to even be in a position of service to be serving others. You know, I've had some of the most impactful conversations on a plane with somebody that's just sitting next to me. Like, hey, you know what? We just start talking. Oh, what do you do? What's that? What's your hat say? Hold fast recovery. It's a treatment center. Oh, my son's my son needs help. I'm like, well, let's find him somewhere right now. I got internet. Where's he at? Let's find him somewhere in your hometown. We'll get this figured out. So there's just moments in the principles that we carry with us in recovery, people pick up on and they'll ask, you know, they'll ask, you know, what's different about that person? And for me, it comes down to faith. People ask, what's different? What got you through these tough times? And that that's what it was. So I think that's so important what you just said. I couldn't, I couldn't have said it better. Tell me about, of course, you know, you had this, you caught lightning in a bottle uh, or peanut butter in a jar, whatever it is. And, um, and then you had, you know, I think probably, I, I don't know if it's your greatest challenge, but I'm going to guess it was certainly top three. <laughs> and, uh, and you, it was June 30th. What year was that? That was 2013. 13. Okay. So you have been on the um, Hot Shots for two years at this point? Yeah, I was into my third season and, uh, you know, physically in shape, looking at promotions and testing and, you know, just a really solid point in my life of getting getting things together and just, you know, kind of the, the drugs were in the past. They were history for me. And were you so the drugs were in the past they were history for you were you in recovery in a recovery community or were you was it at this point had not experienced that at this point i still hadn't experienced it so i was still drinking so i left drugs behind and then i was still drinking and you know i have no no problem saying that whatsoever it's you know it's a part of my story and at the time i was 21 and in the fire department and so it was you know I'd be lying if I said we didn't have some fun times, but yeah, you know, coming into that third season, it was kind of more responsibilities and really looking towards a leadership role and kind of teaching the things that I had been taught to the younger generation of firefighters and continuing to learn from those who, who were pushing forward. And yeah, it was a, it was a good time in my life. And what can you walk me through what happened on, you know, basically, I think it it was over the course of 24 hours, right? Or maybe even less. Yeah. Yeah. It was about 12 hours, roughly 12 hours, maybe sad 16. Yeah. So we get that night, uh, we get called to the station in the morning and we're going somewhere. We don't know where yet. And my roommate was on the crew. And so, you know, we went out to dinner, uh, even had a few beers the night before, um, got home, packed up, 
got everything ready, got to bed, got up early, headed to the station, and uh, we got called to a fire in Yarnell. And so it had started a few days previous from lightning and they were kind of managing it and seeing what it was going to do. And, you know, it was kind of becoming a, a nuisance to the community for the smoke and stuff. So they wanted to start getting around it and put a little more progression in. And it had really not burned much. It was, I think it was like 2000 acres or so when we first got there that morning. So it's like relatively small, right? Like some of the California fires you hear burning now are like 100, 200, 300,000 acres. So relatively small fire. And we hike in and it's like, it's hot and it's kind of humid. It was weird. The weather was unique that day and um, sweating quite a bit. And so we're just, you know, drinking water, staying hydrated. We get to the top of the mountain where the fire had started, where lightning had struck and the fires, you know, way off to the North end of town. And we're completely on the South end. So complete opposites of where any, real active fire is the flaming front. And so our job is just to kind of flank it. So go around the left and right. And on the left side, it was completely checked up in this steep mountain with huge boulders that we really couldn't get into. So we had to go around the right side of the fire and start digging line and just getting a good anchor point is what it's called. And during that time, they're talking about doing a burn or, you know, what do we do? And we need a lookout. So I'm sitting there and at that moment, I'm tying my boot right next to my soup and captain. They say, hey, Donut, that was my nickname. Do you want to be the lookout today? I say, yeah, of course, I'd love to. And I'd done it years previously and been trained. And and you're um, one of 14? One of 20. One of 20. There's 20 people. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so my job is to watch the fire, relay any radio information that I hear, take weather on the hour, and just keep my eyes on a few specific things. And so as I'm getting ready to hike out, another superintendent pulls up from a different crew and he says, Hey, we just got on the fire. We've worked with them years previously, had a really good solid working relationship. And so they're like talking and stuff way over my head two and a half years in, but we'll kind of meet in the middle. We'll dig some lines, see if we can't burn this off and button this up. Um, they've got a dozer working down there around the homes because it's a little bit flatter and dozers sometimes with rocks and hills Anyways, then they end talking and say, Hey, Donut, do you want to ride down? I said, Yeah, of course. Thank you. I throw my pack in, hop in the back and waving at the guys goodbye. And um, about a, I don't know, 10 minute ride down or something like that. And we get to the bottom. And so I go to hop out and they say, Hey, if you need anything, we'll be down here. So we'll keep a watch out for you. We've got to look out up to, you know, we'll just keep in communication. Your guys' vehicles are down here. So, you know, if you need anything, give us a call. And so I start hiking in to my my lookout spot and I get there. And so I put my pack down, pull out my weather kit. I, I take my weather and I've got my radio turned up and I let them know I'm in position, give them the weather. I, I take it on the hour. And so this fire throughout the day just kind of continually burns and it's pushing away from us. And as the day gets hotter, the fire activity starts picking up, but it's still pushing away and they're, they're digging line and um, it starts threatening the community on the North end of the fire. And so my crew, to continue to work on the fire's edge that they were on, they didn't feel comfortable moving forward unless they had uh, a helicopter or something to work with with water. And so they said, hey, we're going we're gonna to hold up here. Um, we'll just kind of keep improving the area we have, but we're not going to go any deeper because they were digging line what's called mid-slope. And so when you're digging line mid-slope, there's quite a bit to watch out for. There's stuff that can roll under kick back up and so you know they're like hey this is as far as we feel comfortable 
And so we're watching this fire and it's burning and we've got some water getting on it. And, uh, you know, it's pretty good fire behavior. And as the day starts to go on, just watching the weather and this weather event comes in and, uh, it's over the radio and it says there's a storm coming. It's bringing 50 to 60 mile an hour winds and it's going to completely turn the fire around essentially. And move south towards the community that we've been trying to protecting on the north end there was like some sporadic ranches but okay. not as condensed as right. yarnell itself which you've been there so you yeah, kind of yeah, yeah. that towards main that. drag yeah mm-hmm. yep that main drag so it's moving away from there but now it's going to turn it around and go towards there and so i'm watching the weather and i can see way off in the distance you know um kind of some cloud build up and so i tell my superintendent i say hey this is the weather event. Did you hear it? Yes, I heard it. I'm seeing this cloud build up. I'll continue to watch it and, you know, I'll just give you a heads up. And so I'm watching this cloud build up. I'm watching my crew to make sure nothing's rolled down and nothing's kind of flared up on them. And it was like a clock, you know, if 12 o'clock was north. This fire just started kind of clicking, you know, went to one, two, and then three o'clock. And at three o'clock, it's, it's running like east and west, not north and south now. And I'm watching it do this and I'm relaying it back and still haven't lost any homes, but just trying to figure out what the game plan is. And that weather event comes in again and it says, hey, this, fi- this, this wind event's going to hit the north of, end of town within an hour. And so I'm like, all right, the north end of town in an hour. So, you know, within an hour, something's going to change. So I relay that back and they hear it. And this fire had turned around within like 15 minutes. I started watching it kind of burn back on itself. And so I said, Hey, this fire's starting to kind of back on itself and it's kind of in some little low valleys. And I don't know if it's just catching a, catching just a little run uphill, you know, I'm talking like a 10 foot hill, right? Just trying to see if it's topography, if it's wind driven. And I start to kind of feel these, these gusts a little bit. So I'm relaying that. And they said, yeah, up on top of the mountain, we're getting some, you know, some squirrely winds as well. I'm like, all right, I'm going to keep watching it. And within a few more minutes, this fire starts pushing backwards, you know, south. And, but it's like the wind's fighting itself, but going north and south. And it starts burning closer to me. I'm, I'm closer to the fire's edge. And so I'm like, hey, it's time for me to get out of here. They said, okay, cool. You know, call us when you get to the road and we'll, we'll guide you out with which, you know, which, which way is best to get out in, in case this thing picks up. And I said, all right, sweet. And so as I'm getting to the road, it's maybe a five minute hike. I, I start seeing the smoke. It starts picking up and I'm like, I got to put, I've got to put a move on it. And so my captain calls down, he says, Bernie, you need to pick up the pace and hit the road. And so as I hit the road, this fire's turned around and it's starting to move south, but a little more east. And I'm like, I need a call for that ride. And I go to call for the ride, but I'm thinking in my head, he might get cut off. And in a split second, I see him bombing down in this UTV. He's like, Hey man, get in. We got to move your buggies. He's like, call your soup and let him know. And I said, here, you tell him cause you've got more experience. And so he calls him up. He says, Hey, I got donut. We're going to move your buggies. This, this fire is kind of making a run for town. You know, we'll meet up with you guys later in the day. Just let us know. and We'll, we'll come drop them off. Okay, cool. See you guys soon. And so we head towards the north end of town 
And the plan is I'm going to stay with this other hotshot crew that we've worked with before. My crew's up on the mountain. They're still kind of trying to figure out what they're doing. And we're going to try and stop this fire from burning through the community. And during that time, someone had radio called to my crew and said, hey, can you get to town because we could really use your help? And so they start making their way down their escape route out of town because the one way we went in off that road has been cut off. So they start moving down there and we get into an area and we're not in there but five minutes and this fire's just ripping. It's coming. There's no stopping it. We don't even have time to put fire on the ground to even try and stop it. We're getting embers falling down. And so we pull out of there and hit the main stretch in Yarnell, that main road. So we're parked on the side of the road and, you know, we hear on the radio, hey, we just lost, we've lost a structure. Okay, we're losing more structures. And then you can see it. it Within the how long? Changes, how long fit. are you losing structure? So... Like minutes? With, with, within minutes. And so... What was supposed to happen in an hour, like this wind event wasn't supposed to hit the north end of town for an hour. And within like 20 minutes, we lost the whole community. And so this fire went through this community. I want the best way someone described it to me, and I, I wish I'd have came up with this, but like skipping a rock, like the fire skipped with the wind from house to house. And my brothers are down their escape route trying to get back into town and their safety zone was the same area as well. So they're headed down their escape route to the, to the safety zone that also leads into town. And, you know, it's one of the best paths they could have taken for getting back in. And we're pulled to the highway and we hear over the radio that um, they're, they're deploying their fire shelters and they've been cut off. So tell me about that because I know very I know a little bit about what that means that there's some sort of that it, it's supposed to stop you but stop you from being burned but how, how tell us a little bit about your fire shelters and how effective that is yeah so the effectiveness of the fire shelters um, I mean they've been proven to be effective in the past but just not with intense fires and you know they've since then you know NASA everybody's been working on trying to build a better fire shelter but. We train with them. We train deployments. Uh, there's a few things that go into it. You clear out all the brush. You put fire on the ground. That's the last thing, you know, to combat the fire, to try and create as much distance between you and the fire. Uh, you, you know, you throw your shelter, you drop down, you grab your radio, your water, you dig a hole, and you just hold on to your shelter. This fire comes through. And um, as we heard this, they were trying to get, a helicopter or a plane in there to drop water, but they couldn't seem to get communication with them to get this done. And, you know, the community's burning. And so all efforts now, everyone's been evacuated. All efforts are on my brothers getting medical, getting everything put together because we're getting ready for a burnover. And uh, we're trying to find a way in there. We're trying to find out exactly where they're at. We can't get a hold of them on the radio. They're thinking, hey, maybe, you know, Maybe it's just too loud because it can be it can be quite a bit under those shelters. I've talked to a few survivors, and it can it can be pretty loud as it's burning over. It can be really loud, and so we're trying to find a way in, and we're gathering medical supplies, and they're asking me who's there, and I'm like everyone but me. Like the whole crew's there. Here's the names. Here's the tools they're carrying. Like that's who's there, and they get a helicopter up with a paramedic to try and spot them. And so we hear over the radio, hey, I've got eyes on them. And so this fire at this point in time has burned through the whole community. 
We've lost, I think, 100 plus structures, and it's still burning. It's burning to the edge of the mountain. It's still going. And we're trying to figure this out. And so they land the helicopter, and the paramedic gets down there, and he comes over the radio, and he says, I've got 19 confirmed. And for a split second, I said, I showed you the roster. I told you how many were there. And then it hit me that they had just passed. And um, what do you mean? So they have, I have 19 confirmed. They mean dead. They, they had just been taken by the fire and they had just passed away, but no one had made it through. What did you think he meant? I thought he meant he had 19 guys there and I thought he was triaging. Right. You okay. know, I, I thought like, like we need to get in there and get medical supplies because we were calling him helicopters for airlifts. We're calling him ambulances. You know, I had my EMT at the time. So I'm like, I need to get in there. Like I've got to, you know, do something. And there was kind of chatter that someone had, you know, that somebody or a handful had made it or something like rumors start spreading, right? right Even right. within a fire. And cause they mis misunderstood the, the radio call. And, uh, yeah, it, it, it was at that moment that I realized like they, they hadn't made it. And, um, the shock just set in immediately. I just broke down crying. You know, I'm watching this chaos happen and unfold. And I'm with this other hotshot crew that I kind of know, but I really don't know. And so I, I, I jump in one of the buggies and I'm just sitting in the seat. I'm just, just kind of losing it. And, um, you know, it's probably half hour after they still haven't informed the families, but news is broke. And they're trying to get all the families together to let them know what's happened or to inform them. And I'm still on this fire and I start hearing cell phones ringing in the buggy. And uh, some of the guys had left their phones. And I remember thinking to myself, like, just don't look at it. You know, just don't look at it. I remember opening the center console and looking at the phone. I remember seeing that. That was one of my brother's wives calling like trying to get a hold of them and uh, my phone's getting blown up and I can't answer. You know, I've been told, Hey, don't answer your phone. And for your safety, we're going to take your phone. You know, if you want it, you can have it, but for your safety, we're going to take your phone. And I said, you can have it. And uh, you know, it, it just, it's hard to put into words what I felt. You know, we just spent the last half hour or so talking about all the amazing things in my life that had happened because of these men all the changes that would have never happened without them were gone within minutes. And, you know, I was so broken and it's time to go. I can't, I'm not staying there. And, you know, it's like, Hey, we're going to take you home. And I remember they were like, you know, the families are at the middle school and I'm like, and there's some former crew members that were my bosses and guys that were on the crew before me, you know, that were there. And I was like, just take me to the middle school, please just take me there. And they're like, you sure you want to go? I said, just take me there. And uh, we're driving back. It's about an hour and a half drive. And I've got nothing else left to cry in me. And I'm just sitting there talking to one of the captains with Prescott Fire Department. Um, he's, he's I, I don't remember much. All I remember is just saying, like, you know, I'll be okay. Like, I'll be okay. You know, like, these families have lost everything. Like, I'll be okay. And, uh we get close to the middle school and there's just cops everywhere. And the news is trying to, you know, obviously get their piece of the media and we come in and I'm thinking to myself, just don't cry, you know, just don't cry anymore. And I get out and I see 
a few of the guys from the crew and my, my academy instructor and I just lose it. And, um, you know, I go in to walk in to see these families and I don't know what I was thinking. I just wanted to be there. I felt like I needed to be there. I had to be there. And so I walk in with some of the other guys that were on the crew and um, I'll, I'll never forget the look on their faces. You know, some of the families didn't know who I was or they met me briefly. You know, some of the families knew me well and, you know, that was heartbreaking and I, I couldn't face that. So I walked out and just found a place to slump down. And um, did you when you walked into the middle school, did they know yet? I believe so. Okay. Okay. So you weren't telling that you weren't the person telling people. No, God, no, that wasn't me. They had, you know, uh, at this point in time, there's probably like 200 members within the fire service that are there from all over the country. You know, they're calling in clinicians, doctors, Senator McCain was there, the mayor. I mean, they've got everybody there to, to have this happen. Pastors, they called up numerous churches, you know, they've got multiple nonprofits are starting to pile in. I mean, they, they came in real quick, the Red Cross. And it was, uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was just one of the toughest moments of my life. You know, I, I had physically been through a lot and mentally pushed myself through the physical pain, but there was no amount of physical shape at that moment. I was in the best physical shape of my life. I could run a half marathon at 2 a.m. in the morning on the drop of a dime. You know, I could work two weeks straight, 16-hour shifts, carrying 45 pounds, digging line all day and feel great. Um, but there was no amount of physical fight in me that was going to get me through this mentally. And it took me four years to figure that out. You know, I was uh, like the months that would come after, I don't remember much. I don't remember probably the, yeah, it's just uh, that trauma and the addiction that I fell into again. How could you not? How could you not fall into addiction again? I mean, it just took so much away from me that I'd fought so hard for. And, uh, you know, those were, those were years I can never get back with my, my kids and, you know, mistakes that I made, the embarrassment of being that, that drunk survivor, you know, and, um, it was tough. There was a lot of pressure. I had pressure from all over the country and all over the world. And, you know, we were, you know, a year plus out and I'm still showing up to raise money and still dealing with litigation and all that came. And it was like, it was hell. And then, you know, they're like, Hey, do you want to write a book? And I wanted to honor my brothers. I wanted nothing to do with the book, but I had talking with a few people that had kind of been through similar situations, you know, told their story, you know, mainly veterans. And, uh, they said, you know, you owe it to your brothers to make sure that their legacy carries on. And um, it was painful. You know, I just relived it every day. I relived it. The memorial shirts, the stickers, I'd be out to dinner. So, hey, are you Brennan? Can I take a photo? And they'd start crying. And I'm like, Ugh. so I drink more. And I drink more and I drink more. And uh, my community loved me and they supported me. So they kept, you know, taking care of me in the best way that they could but it kind of enabled me to uh, continue to, to cause chaos. And I wasn't listening to anyone anyways, because everyone that I would have listened to was gone. I didn't trust anybody. I trusted no one, you know, a few guys that were on the crew previously, 
but they had known some of those men twice, three times as long as I did. And, you know, they were, they were in no shape to give me guidance because they're going through the same exact thing almost. And, uh, cause I spent like four years struggling with alcohol and PTSD before I got help. So what, you know, they asked you to be the lookout, right? You, you know, you went and, and did that. And I can imagine as being an alcoholic and a drug addict that I am that, you know, you know, it's about feeling a part of, right? This is like our thing, right? We don't feel a part of. And yeah. and then you find this crew to be a part of and you become a part of and then something happens to the crew that you're not a part of. And even though that thing that happened to the crew that you're not a part of is is death, I would imagine for me, I would want to have been there. I would want to have been that some place in me would have thought, I wish I had died with them because that would have been easier. Wholeheartedly, 110%. At that moment in time for years, I felt like that would have been the easiest thing. Like either for me, it had been burned over first and maybe that would have changed the trajectory of their plan or to have just been with them because like I was it, you know, to the public. And, you know, there was a lot of just pressure and responsibility. You know, I just remember for like weeks, like, floating in and out of the fact that maybe someone made it. Like I was jacked up mentally. Uh, I really didn't realize till a few years later, like I'd wake up and I'd be like, Oh man, I got to go see so-and-so today. Cause like we're it. And then like, that was not the truth whatsoever. And had some pretty wild dreams, you know, some really wild dreams and just some moments of like guys coming and visiting me in my dreams. And I just know that like God had allowed that to happen. You know, because it was it wasn't like it was an honest conversation that we had in those dreams. What was what what did they tell you in your dreams? I remember I had seen two of the guys and um it kinda like it was really weird, but it was like as vivid as I'll never forget it. I was downtown walking and like out of nowhere these kind of like gates of the pearly gates open, right? and these steps come right and it's like beautiful it's stunning it's like blinding and the guys come down and um there's a few of them i remember thinking like you know and i don't i don't want to use names just because i want to like respect the families and this is my personal experience and i was like hey why aren't you like with your kids he's like oh i I went there you know and um i'm like we're so-and-so he's like hey it's with his dad you know like in his dreams right and uh I remember just asking him, like, what the f*** am I going to do? Like, like, what am I supposed to do? Like, I need guidance. Like, the only guidance I had was from you. And, and I, I remember just, like, hearing from them, like, you'll get through this. Like, you'll get through this. You know, and that happened a few times. And I remember just, like, thinking so hard throughout the days of, like, trying to find in my head what they would say to me that, like, it would come to me in a dream. Right? And, uh... And amazingly, it was, you'll get through this, right? Like sometimes, sometimes like that's it. Like that is like in the simplicity of life, you know, we always (laughs) used to say in the crew, like, you know, it'll all over be soon. Like when we had a hellacious day of just backbreaking work, I'd look over at one of the guys and I'd be like, man, it'll all be over soon, you know? And so when they say, you'll get through this, I'm like, when, like when, how, like, what am I supposed to do? And it wasn't, you know, for for a while that I didn't, I didn't go to counseling. I kept turning it away and we were at a memorial 
in Emmitsburg, Maryland, and it's honoring all firefighters within the country that it passed. And that year, you know, it's the largest tragedy since um, 9-11. And so it's big. It's big. And um, chartered the whole plane, you know, full plane, flew all the families out. And we get done with the memorial, and uh, we go to a bar, as good firemen and women do. And I start drinking. Just drinking, 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 trying to try to stuff out everything because, you know, people, you know, that are experiencing it are seeing this memorial. For me, I'm seeing everything that I, you know, lived through. And uh, this counselor that's kind of been there since day one walks up and says, hey, Brennan, how you doing? I look over at her. I'm like, thinking like myself, I'm great. <laughs> yeah, right. That's the same answer I gave everyone. And I'm like, you know what? Just give it to her. Let's see what she's got. I said, well, Carrie, I tried to blow my brains out last week, but I couldn't seem to get the courage to pull the trigger. And, you know, I don't think I'm going to make it much longer. And she goes, you want to tell me more? I said, yeah, sure. Why not? Sit down. Want a drink? She kind of looked at me and laughed. I'm like, all right, more for me. And so we sat there for probably a half hour, hour talking. I don't remember much. By the time she found me, I was probably six, seven, eight glasses of whiskey in. And, uh, you know, people knew when I started to drink like that, just to leave me alone, you know, and, but she was a counselor and she knew how to do her job really well. And her husband was a Phoenix fireman. And so she had somewhat of an understanding of the fire service and, you know, had, had lived through a lot and had close calls with her husband. And, you know, long and the short of this conversation, it, it came down to Brennan, do you want to continue to live your life like this? And I said, I would do anything to make a change. And she said, well, you got to get help. And I said, I tried to get help. And the attorney or the counselor that you sent me was more like an attorney, not her, but the state, whoever it was, you know, all he cared about was getting me back to work and making sure that I didn't get a pension. So unless you can find a counselor that's not working for the government, then I don't want to talk to him because I kicked him out of my house and I told him to never come back. And she goes, no, 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 I'll help find you one. You just got to show up and be willing to put the work in. And I was like, this lady just said, I'm not willing to put work in. And I was like, I'm a hot shot. I could put work in, you know, she's like, this could be tough, Brennan, mentally. And I said, if you can sit here and tell me that I'll find healing and peace and that I don't have to live the rest of my life in this misery because I won't live much longer. Either I'll end up overdosing or I'll end up killing myself because I can't do this. And I'm, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm worthless to my daughter at this point in time in my life. And she goes, if you put in the work, I can't guarantee anything, but I can tell you that your life will get better. And that same tone of you'll get through this, right? No guarantees what the outcome's going to be. So I said, all right, set something up. And so we're flying home the next day, and she's like, all right, you know, are you ready for a counselor? And I'm like, kind of hazy, hungover. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> like- sure, whatever. And I get home. She's got an appointment set up, and so I go to this counseling office, and the first session is just the basics, right? And so I show up for the second session, and it's, you know, hey, what do you want to work on? And the counselor knows. The counselor knows who I am and has an idea. And she goes, I'm going to let you lead. Where do you want to go? She's like, how are you feeling? And I'm like, meh, you know, like, what do you mean? She goes, you happy, sad, angry, depressed? I'm like, I don't know. I really can't tell you how I'm feeling right now. And uh, we went back and forth for like 20 minutes. And she finally was like, if you don't tell me how you're feeling and let down some of your walls and share something with me, I can't just magically fix you. Like you have to put the work in and it's going to suck. It was trauma therapy is EMDR. Like you're going to have to talk about it. You're going to have to go there and revisit these memories and understand 
what what is hurting you? And so I was like, all right, whatever, f- it, I'll give it to her. Here it is. And so I just blah, everything, everything I had from the survivor's guilt to them passing away to the mortuary to the caskets, the funerals to dealing with, you know, court to dealing with just a hole people, everything, the nightmares that haunted me, the fact that I couldn't eat red meat because of it being barbecued, like just every little detail that made me stay up at night, that made me drink myself to sleep, that made me suicidal, that pushed me down in depression. I just gave to her. And what was supposed to be an hour session was like two and a half, three hours. She had stepped out and her other clients said, Hey, you're going to have to come back. And the lady was like, I've heard what's going on in there. I'm yelling. I'm loud. Right. Okay. Okay. Yes. And that, and you know, and I'm crying and I'm like screaming and I'm just like letting everything out. Yeah. It's happening. And we get done and she's like, well, how do you feel? And I said, I feel like worse than I've ever felt. She goes, no relief. I said, I'm tired. Like, I'm sure I'll probably sleep good after I drink. And she goes, why, like, why don't you cut back on your drinking? I'm like, we're not going to talk about that. And so I come back the next week and we actually start reprocessing. And so then it's two times a week. And then it's like three times a week. And I'm starting to see this relief. And I'm on medication. I start taking some medication for sleep and for anxiety and depression and not like a like a Prozac, like feeling great, but just enough to like keep me from, you know, going so dark. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But I was drinking, and she asked me, "How's your drinking?" And I'd lie to her. I was like, "Ah, oh, it's fine, not a problem." And um, as I'm starting to like heal the PTSD, and in my head, I'm thinking, once I heal that, I'll be okay to drink because I could drink before and had no issue, you know, no issue whatsoever. So I can do it now. And, you know, nine months of therapy later and I'm off my medication and, you know, since then I've had two moments of anxiety that I felt pretty wound up, you know, and this is over three and a half years ago. I was still drinking and I was like, okay, something's got to change, you know, and during that, those times, like fist fights, you know, holes in the wall, I kicked in doors. One time I came home and my my pack or something that was from the crew was in my garage. And so I just broke like everything in my garage. My buddy had his furniture stored there. And like, I had to explain that to him, you know, like it was like, I wasn't mad that your furniture was stored there. I was just mad at this. It was just, it was bad. And, uh, his pastor started meeting with me. He's like, Hey man, I'm starting this recovery meeting. Why don't you come check it out? I know you used to be a junkie, like, you know, just very forward and blunt. And I'm like, Oh, okay. You know, cause he tried getting me to go to church. I'm like, nah, uncomfortable. You know, like the one time I went, I had like chewing tobacco in and I just felt horrible. I'm like, why? But I anxiety. And, and so I end up showing up at this meeting and I get there and I'm watching these guys in recovery, right? You know, like Prescott, there's a bunch of recovery centers. And so they find meetings. And so this recovery meeting was biblically based, but really open. And there's some guys that are going through programs and, you know, Bob's kind of telling my story. This time the book's out, the movie's going to be coming out and I'm still drinking some like notoriety like through the roof now. And so I'm just trying to be me. And, you know, some of the guys are like, Hey, can you sponsor me? And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> what's a sponsor you know 
And they're like, oh, you've never worked the steps. And I'm like, uh-uh. Are you sober? I said, yeah, I don't use drugs. I drink. And uh, they like, kind of gave me this look of like, keep playing around. You'll find out, you know? Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, you're the one in treatment, dude, not me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, take it in my head. Yeah, like take yeah. it down a notch, buddy. Yeah, just me being the smart A kid that I was. And I remember going home thinking like, even though they're in a center and they're cut off from the world, if they've got something different about them. And I'm not a super smart math person, but I like to use math as logic. And so I'm thinking like back to middle school, I'm like, what's the common denominator here? What am I missing? And what I'm missing is a relationship with God. And what I'm missing is the opportunity to be truly sober from, you know, all drugs and alcohol. I remember going home and just crying and praying out to God saying, I can't do this. Like I just went through nine months of intense counseling. Like, I'm not really ready up for a challenge. And like the nightmares have pretty much succeeded, but this drinking was still an issue. And uh, I mean, I can't do this alone. Like you've got to do something. And so like everything in my life, I kept it a secret day after day. I just decided not to drink. And it was St. Patty's day. That's my sobriety date of 2017. Perfect um, for Prescott too. Yeah. I know I'm Irish. My family's from Southie. Like the year before I spent in Boston on St. Patty's day backstage with dropkick Murphy's got kicked out of the show. The band's trying to tell security not to kick me out. It, and I'm like, I'm not having another St. Patty's day like that again. Like I'm not missing another dance class. I'm not missing anything with my daughter. I'm not missing nothing again. And I was engaged at the time and my daughter had it. My wife had a kids so with two kids and, you know, planning to get married. And so three months go by and I tell that pastor, I say, Hey, I've got, you know, three months sober. Don't tell anybody though. Cause I don't want to let anybody down. And she's like, all right, not an issue. And so I show up Wednesday and we're at this Bible study and uh, it's like, Hey, we've got a barbecue next Saturday. And, we got service work on Friday. For those of you who need it, we'll pick you up from the center or whatever. Just let us know. And by the way, Brennan's got three months sober. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I'm sitting there thinking to myself, and I'm like, this man just blew my spot up, you know? And it was in that moment that I had realized that I found another sense of commodity, another sense of brotherhood that I hadn't felt in years i'd felt moments but not like there and um I, I i did what i needed to do and i've kept kept myself sober since then along with you know the fellowship and my relationship with god and it's it's of the utmost importance and it's completely changed my life radically five years ago if you'd asked me i'd have told you i'd have been dead by 25 that's what i believed and now i don't i don't care when it happens I just know that I get to live a life as a good husband, a good father, and serve my community a different way. And that's where I just started praying. I'm like, God, what do you want next? The book had come out. The movie was done. You know, I was speaking, and it really wasn't fulfilling me because I wasn't able to work with people on a personal level. And he was like, hey, open a treatment center. I'm like, that must be for the wrong person. That's not for me because I'm a knuckle-dragging hotshot with no education and no business experience. I think that's for somebody else. And so I kept praying, and within that week, he made it very clear. He said, you need to go open a treatment center. And so I did that almost two and a half years ago. 
and we've been growing and just, yeah, I like we talked earlier, just paying it forward, right. And being a, a leader in whether it's recovery or not. And I found myself in recovery being a leader and I've just learned so much about myself and those I help. And I remember when I started telling people in the recovery community, I was going to start a treatment center. They're like, you've only got nine months. You didn't have a year. You're not going to make it. And I'm like, watch, like I'll get through this. Like this plan of me staying sober does not change. That drive that I had when I first got hired on that crew, the mountain that was ahead of me was sobriety. And I wasn't going to quit no matter how steep, no matter how nasty, no matter how long, whatever the ups and downs, if I could get through all of that life, there's probably not much that's going to phase me. And now that I have my relationship with God, it's completely different. And so Hold Fast Recovery has been around for two and a half years. Uh, we're launching a women's program, which is just mind-blowing to me because I never thought we'd be here. I really didn't. You know, we hit we hit two years this summer, and I look back, and I was just like, wow. Like, like getting sober, like, isn't lame. <laughs> like it's a lot of fun, and it's pretty cool. I've had more fun in my life since being sober than even when I was using. And I had a lot of crazy times. I'm sure we all did, right? And it's, and it's, you know, but nothing compares to the ability to be able to come home. Like yesterday, I was going to my, my daughter went to jujitsu uh, Monday night and she works hard. And I went after her. And so we didn't get home till about eight o'clock. And she's, she's almost 10 uh, this spring. And um, we're eating dinner. And I can just see her just kind of like falling asleep at the table. She's still got to shower, pack her lunch, clean up her room, make sure she's done reading, make sure all her school stuff's done. She's got another hour or so of stuff to do. And uh, I see her off the bed, and she's done, and she's in there making her lunch and stuff. And just that accountability piece, want her to feel part of. And that way, if she like doesn't like something at lunch, she can't complain to us. But she's she's doing amazing. And as I'm, I'm walking out of the house and I'm like a get up, comb my hair, brush my teeth and go kind of guy. I don't eat no coffee, no nothing. I'm usually fast for the you know majority of the day. And I see my lunchbox getting teary eyed sitting on my key hanger. And it's got a note from my daughter. I love you, daddy. Have a wonderful day. XOXOXO. And um, as I headed into work, I just started crying. I'm so emotional now. Uh, It's so good. I've got like my wife, my two daughters, finally had a little boy in the house. So like, you know, life is good. And I'm I'm going into hold fast. And I'm thinking like this moment in itself was worth it all. Everything that I've been through, everything that I thought I was sacrificing by getting sober, but everything that I gained was just another reminder that there's hope, like no matter what the rock bottom is, however you put it, it's different for everybody. There's hope and you don't have to do it alone. And we have purpose and we have greater purpose than we'll ever understand it now. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, <laughs> I think, uh, you know, I really try to remind myself because I don't know about you, but there's been lots of things that I've had to quote unquote, give up or quit along the way in sobriety behaviors, um, you know, do just, you know, nicotine, like all sorts of different things that, that over the course of my time in sobriety, 
I have had to, you know, give up. And so I often find myself saying things like, well, why do I have to quit everything? This is so unfair. I have to quit, quit. And I use this word quit. And I, I heard someone talk about how, no, like, what do you get by giving that thing up? What do you, what, what are all the, like, what are all the things you're actually getting in return? And so when I started to focus on all the things that, like you said, that recovery brings in and that I get, I get to not drink, you know, I get to when I like really put that and as corny as it sounds, it sounds like semantics, but it actually really made a difference in my perspective. What do I get to do? I get to have freedom because I don't have to think about that. I get to not have to worry about buying, you know, I get to live in fear. Yeah. Right. And, and of that reputation or whatever it is. And, and I think that some of those just like you get to experience that moment with your daughter and have the full weight of what that means. You know, I think so many people who haven't had these life and death and these, these, these just trying situations that we go through in recovery, I think that those moments pass them by, you know, maybe a lifetime of them. How, who knows how many, how many times that feeling of like, I could have missed this. I could have missed this. And when when you when you are in recovery some and and you're really, you know, working on it, you're focused, you bring this heavy focus onto those thing the meaning of each of those things. And I think that um particularly with what you had gone through and and the value of just being alive, literally just being here. I mean, so much of that you had that you had that with heroin, but then you also had that with everything that you went through with Granite Mountain and just there's just so much there. One of the things I wanted to ask you about our company, we started a program for first responders and I have a bunch of friends who are sober, who are firefighters and what we experienced and and we've done everything from offering free treat in the early days. We offered free treatment for veterans. We've done, I mean, we've done so much to try to engage first responders. And my, our experience has been first responders really can't get over so many, you know, obviously not all, but this is a, a, this was a common thing. They don't want to use their health insurance because they don't want people to know. They don't want anyone to know that they're struggling. They don't want to get help. They certainly don't want to get help with other people who aren't first responders or don't understand. And so there's this like what seems like this trap for them around you don't like very much in in a very much like veterans where you've never been to war you do not understand your problems with your husband or even your domestic violence or whatever it is do not compare to and and i went into this meeting with a guy who's really incredible guy who who's a, a firefighter longtime firefighter in recovery and he was saying that and I thought to myself, you know, I've seen some pretty gnarly stuff and, you know, <laughs> worked at the DA's office and seen some pictures I'd rather not see, you know, and all this stuff. And he starts telling this story as an example of something that I will never in my lifetime get out of my head. One of those like singed into your brain that you really wish it wouldn't be. And it was just like a regular, like, these are the types of things. And I... a normal day call. Yeah. Right. And... I had this overwhelming, like, oh, oh, you can't tell that story 
in a group with other people who ha- aren't first or should. like literally it's not like you can't you can't because the only thing i could think about from that moment was that story and and then you add on the culture of not wanting to ask for help you don't understand me and not wanting to ask for help so all of this is just to ask you and to say and engage in how do we reach people? I mean, we need people like you who can speak to the experience. I mean, that it's always that, right? Like it takes one to help one. But how do we change this culture for first responders around getting help? Because so many of them go through this PTSD. And what was interesting was that even you said, I could handle my alcohol before the incident, right? Before this happened. How many other people maybe we're okay before aren't now. How do we help firefighters? How do we change those beliefs that, that the helpers can't be helped? I think there's kind of like, there's, there's one issue that I think that's going on in like the recovery world is that a lot of centers are super proactive, whatever their motives are for wanting to work with first responders. And I think most of them have the best intentions, but I think like you've really got to put together a solid staff that's going to be able to understand what they're going through. And um, I think that's, that's huge. Like a lot of people are like, Oh, I want to help first responders. This is so awesome. Let's get them in here. Then they get in there and you're like, Oh crap. Like this guy has dealt with more death in like three weeks working in South central or Chicago than I've dealt with in my whole family. You know, and so people, they have the best intentions, but it's like you have to put those aside and see what's, you know, professionally appropriate. And so I think that's important, you know, is having staff that is culturally competent. And there's a lot of first responders that are becoming therapists as well now. And so, you know, that's something that we integrate at Holdfast because, you know, it's one thing for me to talk to them and say, hey, this is what our program is and, and kind of describe that to them and say, hey, you know, I, I built this for us and civilians, you know, so keep that in mind. And, you know, we're, that, that, that's what people need to hear, but also another, and we have some first responders in our office that are here as well. To the latter part of the question, like culturally, you know, the unions are working really hard to make sure that they can get services, you know, within insurance, unless it's crazy, right? We have HIPAA, they should be protected so they can, they can go to treatment. And we've worked with plenty of first responders on that. And the culture is taking a shift within the fire service. And that's, that's the only way it's going to change is we can put as much outside pressure as we want in the fire community. That culture shift has to happen from within and it's happening. Um, When I first started speaking, you know, this was before even, you know, sobriety and even counseling for mental health events. I was honest, you know, I said, Hey, I'm going to the bar right now. You know, I'm just telling you, I'm here living like, that's it. You know, this is my story and I'm, I'm sticking with it and hopefully I get better at some point. It was it was like 50 people in a room, you know. I spoke at one two years ago, the same one. It was like the third or fourth or fifth annual or something. And there was like 1,500 in the room. And some of the biggest chiefs in, in California, this was in California, it was Sacramento, I believe I was in. And uh, some of the biggest chiefs from the biggest departments were there, even medium-sized part, LA County, LA City, San Diego. Um, Long Beach, Sacramento, San Francisco, Oakland, like huge departments. Uh, they're chiefs. The chief of the entire department was there. And so there's been this huge cultural shift within peer support. And so peer support is really huge in the fire service right now. And so they're implementing counselors and therapy dogs. And, you know, some departments don't have access to that. Some do. But I think just like 
the legality piece is probably the best piece that we can approach them on. And then just having the personal experience to be able to share with them. I think those two are the biggest things when someone's trying to get into treatment. But when you're just talking to someone, I think just listening and finding the right person for them to talk to. Like a lot of times there'll be an incident within one department, but they'll pull peer support from a neighboring department to come in and talk with them because the guys at the station, the girls at the station, you know, it's, it's, it's different. And so I believe, and I, I don't believe, I know that that stigma is being broken down. And I think, you know, that uh, the union, they've started the treatment center just for firefighters. And oh, Maryland. good, good, good. You know, That's they've got a, resident, a residential center there. They're looking at opening a few more so that, you know, it's, it's watched over by them. And they know, you know, from the layout, it looks like a fire station. The kitchen looks like a fire station. You know, there's some really cool things they're doing and not every program fits every person either. Right. And so I think if if there's anything we can do, it's just really, you know, continue to support them in their, their want and need to expand and grow. And where I guess I can say on this end where we see fit for professionals, I'm not calling myself a therapist or anything, just someone who works in recovery. When we have an opportunity to share what we know with them, I think we take that and there can be a little bit of fear of like these people are closed off. They stay together. But when you start talking, when you start opening up, uh, you know, I've seen some pretty amazing connections happen between those civilian kind of first responder divide that people thinks there, but it really isn't. Yeah. We're all human. And what I tell a lot of of people that I talk with, is like, we all have hurts. Yours might hurt different than someone else, but that doesn't take away from yours or theirs. And what they can withstand might be more and what you can vice versa. And, you know, I think that's what's important is they, they have that cape they've got to wear and they need to find be able to find a place where they can take that cape off. Yeah, and, absolutely. You know, shed those layers and open up and, you know, be understanding. So that was a lot for us pretty question that I probably could answer within a, you know, one or two sentences, but it's something that I'm just so excited for within the first responder world, especially the fire service. I've just seen a huge shift in the culture and, um, you know, they continue to make the right moves to take care of, take care of their own. I love that. I love that. It's so amazing and happy to hear that because it's so needed. Last question, Brennan, you've been amazing and and thank you for being so present and real. My last question for you is about what it's like having a movie done and your life being uh, on the big screen and and uh, that experience, just how how that felt for you, particularly it can't, you said it came out before you had really gotten into the recovery space, yeah. so. It was it was like a three four year process for the film everything you know from meeting the producer the first time to writing a script finding directors actors but it was emotional it was super emotional it wasn't cathartic until I got sober so when the film came out I think I had like five six months maybe when the film came out and uh, I had some really good mentors in my life and. Josh Roland, who's main that one of the main actors, he's in recovery. And so like he would take time to check on me and, and just, you know, cause we're going to movie premieres and there's a lot of people drinking and a lot of people at the time really didn't know I was in sobriety. So of course, firefighters are, like showing up with bottles, like Brennan, come on. And I'm like, dude, that will wreck my life. I'll burn this theater to the ground. Like the last thing we need is me drinking here. And, um, but 
it was it was a really powerful experience. You know, it's something that I didn't want to go through, and I don't want anyone to have to go through. But but it was presented in a way that I truly believed would honor my brothers and and help people remember who they are, and not just them, but the, uh, many other firefighters that have paid the ultimate sacrifice and those that are working so hard currently and work so hard year around for us. And I didn't want to be the person to say no, because mentally I wasn't ready. You know, I was at the point in place when that first started that I said, if, you know, whatever, at whatever cost to honor them, that's what I'll go through and I'll deal with the rest later when I'm done. And so I'm glad I got sober though, because it made it such a more impactful moment for me when I watched the film for the first time. And, you know, just to take all that in, it gave me closure to, you know, what was being described for that last final moment is uh, tragic as it was. It's something I played over and over in my head of what it would look like. And, you know, there's some really awesome moments in that film, though. There's some really powerful moments. There's some really funny moments in the film. And it just sheds light on a community that, that hasn't had much attention that uh, gives so much. And so um, it was a unique experience, you know, got to meet some, some really cool people that put a lot of effort into ensuring my brothers would be honored by that film. And they did that wholeheartedly. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Brendan, so much. Your book is Granite Mountain and the, the film is uh, Only the Brave uh-huh. and Hold Fast Recovery in Prescott, Arizona if uh, people are interested, they can, what is, you want to give us your uh, website where people can go? Yeah. www.holdfastrecovery.com. Uh, we're on social media. You can find me on social media, you know, and it's, it's just about helping people get in somewhere. It's not just with us, you know, we work in the industry. So it's like 80% of what we do is help people find the right fit. And so if you feel comfortable talking with someone like me, or someone like Ashley, like, just call, like, we're here for you. Um, either or centers have no connection, but like there's people out there that care and they want to help, you know, find you a place to find healing. And I think, you know, that's so important that we just continue to pay it forward and, you know, push on and just be a beacon of light to those who are struggling. Absolutely. Absolutely. Brendan, you are, um, your inspirational, um, not not because you caught lightning in a bottle, but because you are so raw and authentic and you were willing to do the work. And there's so many people who aren't, and I know what it takes to do the work. I've been, I've been clean and sober for almost 15 years and I, um, I know what that takes and I've, I've done the, um, I've done the EMDR and I know what that takes and it's huge. And it's, and, and that to me is, is the most beautiful thing. And I love, 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 you know, you talked about your group teaching you to be a man. And I love that someone who is strong in their person and in their manhood also talks about being emotional and feeling things because it's so important in our day and age. Like you can be you know, manly and, and everything that you want to shape with that, whatever that looks like, that can include being a feeling human person. And I just, it's so important. You know, it's something I can't transmit. It's something people like you have to be out there doing. So thank you. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for sharing your story and saying yes. And I'm just really, really grateful for your time. Thank you, Ashley. I really appreciate it as well. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. 
LionRock.life is a recovery community offering free online support group meetings, useful recovery information, and entertainment. Visit www.lionrock.life to view the meeting schedule and find additional resources. Find the joy in recovery at LionRock.life.